So we are going to be starting our time in the Word today. We're going to be Book of Jonah, uh, Chapter 1. We're going to finish Chapter 1. This is our fourth week in the Book of Jonah. And the title of today's sermon is Substitute Overboard. Substitute Overboard. I know uh, kids would love to throw their substitute overboard. Uh, a lot of times they give substitutes a hard time when they are in school. Uh, but substitute overboard, you'll understand it by the end very clearly. We're going to be in chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your mercy and grace. I thank you for your spirit that leads and guides us. We confess that we have sinned so much, that we have uh, not sought you as we should have every day of our life. We have not lived as we should have. But Lord, we want to repent. We want to be... Um, yours fully. We want to uh, live a life that honors you and glorifies you because you are God. You are judge. You are king. Uh, there is no uh, way that we could think that we are more important than you. Uh, you are a great God. And we pray that you would help us to surrender every part of our lives to your control, that we would be trusting, that we would be willing to give and sacrifice our lives with joy for your kingdom's sake. Uh, we want to serve you in your kingdom. Uh, we believe that your will is better than our own will. And so, God, all these things we just lift up to you, all the direction of our church and, uh, and our lives and our families and our relationships. And, God, all these things... We, we lay on the altar before you and we worship you because you are God and more important than us in every way. In Jesus' name uh, and, and with, his, with his love for us, we just rejoice and we pray these things to you, God. Amen. All right, substitute overboard. There was a book called Written in Blood, written by Robert Coleman, and it tells the story of a little boy whose sister needed a blood transfusion. The doctor explained that she had uh, the same disease that that little boy had recovered from himself two years earlier. Her only chance for a full recovery was a transfusion of blood from someone who had previously conquered this disease. Since the two children had the same rare blood type, the boy was the ideal donor. So they came to him and they said, would you give your blood to Mary, your, your little sister? The doctor asked him and Johnny hesitated. His lower lip started to tremble. Then he smiled and said, sure, for my sister I would. Soon the two children were wheeled into the hospital room Mary, pale and thin, Johnny, robust and healthy. Neither of them spoke, but when their eyes met, Johnny grinned and smiled at his sister. As the nurse inserted the needle into his arm, Johnny's smile faded and he watched the blood flow through the tube. With the, with the ordeal almost over, his voice slightly shaky, broke the silence and said, Doctor, when do I die? Only then did the doctor realize why 
Johnny had hesitated. He thought that giving up his blood to his sister meant that he was giving up his life. And in that brief moment, he had made his great decision to give his life for his sister. Well, fortunately, the story ends happily, and he didn't have to die to save his sister. And, um, the, you know, it's a great story, but it reminds us that each one of us has a condition far more serious than Mary's called sin. And Jesus was required to give not only his blood, but his whole life as our substitute to save our life. This is real love. This is true love. True love follows this pattern that we just described. What pattern? It's the pattern of substitutionary love. Substitutionary giving of one's own life for someone else. Well, let's go ahead and read our text and then we'll get into why that was our introduction and what we can what what God is going to show us through this end of chapter 1 of Jonah. Verse 10. The, then the men were exceedingly afraid and asked him, "Why have you done this?" For the men knew that he had fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them And they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. And then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to land, but they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Therefore they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life, and do not charge us with innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. These pagan sailors have discovered the source of God's storm in their lives. The source is sin and rebellion. Specifically, it's Jonah's sin, but it's still sin is the problem. That's why this storm is there. So now they're asking how, they're investigating how they can fix the situation. They need to deal with the source of the problem. They need to deal with the sin. That's always the issue, isn't it? Jonah and his sin are the source of this judgment storm. So they ask what they should do about him. And Jonah, he gives them an answer. And it's fascinating. He says, throw me into the sea. 
to quote the verse that says, he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Why is Jonah saying this? Does he have a death wish? Would he rather die than obey God and preach God's mercy and love to the pagans? Or is Jonah trying to take responsibility for his actions and save the sailors? It's kind of a big debate in, uh, with the biblical scholars of which one is true. And maybe it's a bit of both. Jonah seems to be a, a complicated guy. Uh, we know that when he is seeing these actions of the sailors, that he he's kind of touched, he's kind of moved, and he it seems that he does not want these sailors to die in his storm. He's feeling somewhat responsible for their condition, and it seems like their their character has made an impression on him. You know, he had this uh, bigoted view of them that all pagans were just self-serving, uh, selfish people and not worth saving. But he's maybe starting to think that these pagans aren't quite as evil or bad as he thought that they were. In fact, they have been more honorable than him every step of the way, and he's not really blind to that fact. They have been truly kind. They've been thoughtful and they've tried to save Jonah over and over again. It seems that God has used these pagans to touch the hard heart of his rebellious prophet. God loves his prophet. He loves his people, but he also loves these pagan sailors just as much. And he uses whoever he chooses. You know, Jonah could be saying, you are dying for me when it should be me dying for you. So, so throw me overboard, Jonah would say. I will be your substitute. You shouldn't have to die. I will die for you. So we're going to take this as Jonah choosing to be the substitute for the sailors. And what we see here is the pattern of godly substitutionary love that Jonah shows us. I will die so you don't have to. I will put your needs above my own needs and my own life. It's interesting that Jonah would act this way because up until this point, he's shown us, at least at least in the story, he hasn't been very honorable and he hasn't really shown us much of God's love and God's character. But it's pretty clear that this is a substitutionary love act that he's going to offer his life. He believes he's going to die when he's thrown overboard and that is for the life of these sailors. And what's interesting is that our hearts... As anyone who reads this book reads of the sacrifice, our hearts are moved and touched by this kind of love, this kind of self-sacrifice. We call it agape love. 
when a hero gives his life for somebody, or even a villain at the end of a movie, when the hero dies at the end of the movie, when anyone dies giving their life as a sacrifice, it wrecks us, man. Grown men cry like babies, even uh, as we watch these images and these stories of self-sacrifice. In May 21st, 1946, in Los Alamos, New Mexico, a young, daring scientist was carrying out a necessary experiment in preparation for an atomic bomb test to be conducted in the South Pacific uh, Bikini Islands. He had successfully performed this specific test many times before. In his effort to determine the amount of uranium-235 necessary for a chain reaction, uh, scientists call that uh, critical mass, he pushed two hemispheres of uranium together. Then, just as the mass would become critical, he would push them apart using his screwdriver, thus instantly stopping the chain reaction. But on that day, May 21st, the screwdriver slipped just as the mass was becoming critical. Instantaneously, the room was filled with a dazzling bluish haze, which was a, a, a sign of radioactive uh, activity in the oxygen. The, the, the air was getting uh, ionized or oxidized. I don't remember which. And this young man, whose name was Louis Sloten, Instead of ducking and possibly saving himself, he tore the two hemispheres apart with his hands and interrupted the chain reaction. By this uh, self-forgetful, kind, brave, daring act, he saved the lives of seven other people in that room that were watching him, that he was training as he waited for the car that was going to take him to the hospital, he quietly said to his friend, You'll come through all right, but I haven't the faintest chance myself. And it was very true. He died nine days later of acute radiation poisoning. Uh, in, in extreme agony, actually. Just pretty terrible what he had to go through. You know, 2,000 years ago, Jesus, the Son of God, walked directly into God's poisonous, terrifying judgment when he walked up to the cross. He gave his life as our substitute. He was touched by the curse, the poison of sin, even though he was completely innocent. And, and he broke the chain reaction of sin in our lives. He broke the power of sin by giving his life to destroy it. Why do these stories of substitutionary love touch our very souls? The answer is because we, every human being, is made in the image of God. We are made in his image. There is something of his life and his purpose and his love that, that still remains in our being deep down inside. 
We are made in the image of God. In, uh, in Matthew, there's a verse that uh, when Jesus talks about Jonah, Jesus calls himself the greater than Jonah. Jonah was willing to sacrifice his life for these sailors to save their lives. But Jesus, because he's the greater than Jonah, his story is a little bit different, a little bit bigger. He gives his life as a sacrifice, a substitute to save the whole world. That's why he is the greater than Jonah. In 1 Timothy uh, 2, verses 5 and 6, it says, uh, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all to be testified in due time. That was 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. His love is for you. This love is real, and it's yours. But I can hear the objections. But I've never known it. I've never understand, understood how God could love me or has loved me. In fact, my life seems to be the opposite. I seem to never sense or know or experience God's love. I've never seen it. I've never had an, an example of it. What is substitutionary love? Well, there are many examples, really. There was a small boy who was consistently late for dinner. One particular day, his parents warned him to be on time. But he arrived later than ever. He found his parents already seated at the table, about to start eating, and quickly he sat in his place. Then he noticed that what was set before him was a slice of bread and a glass of water. There was silence as he stared at his plate, crushed. Suddenly, he saw his father's hand reach over and pick up his plate and set it before himself. Then his dad put his own full plate in front of his son and smiling warmly, he, he, as he made this exchange, um, he said, I love you, son. And when that boy became a man, he said, all my life, I've known what God thinks of me and what God was like. And I knew about God's love because of what my father did for me on that night. I give you that example so that we can realize that we can all serve as examples of this substitutionary, sacrificial, godly, Christ-like love every day. We can make an impression on people with God's love. Jonah, he has not done much right, but it seems like he is making one right choice and he's making a good impression on these pagan sailors. He offers his life for them. Even with all his issues, he serves as an example and a type of God's perfect love for us uh, through Christ. And that's why this book is just so deep and so wonderful. It's, it's, it's shining a spotlight, not on Jonah, but on Jesus, even though it was written years, hundreds of years before Christ was even born. 
So how do we respond? What do we do? Well, let's look at the sailors and how they respond to being loved like this, to Jonah's substitutionary love. It says, Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to return to land, but they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. This is awesome. Look at what they do. They try to save themselves first. They, they, they don't just accept his grace, his love, his sacrifice. That's not the first thing they do. They, they don't initially want to accept his mercy, this, this grace. This loving sacrifice is not what they were expecting. And maybe they feel like they could try harder to get it done on their own. And what's crazy is we do this all the time. As I was reading this, I was like, I, my eyes were just open. I was like, oh my goodness, this is what we do. Before I will depend on Jesus Christ alone and his sacrificial life alone, I try to do everything else I can do. I said, let, let me try first. Let me give it my best shot. I will try harder and I will do more. That's always my first thought when I'm in a storm, when I'm failing, when I'm struggling. I always want to depend on myself first, just like these sailors. And then sometimes even after years of efforts and trying, I give up. And then I complain that it was too hard to follow God. Have you ever known anyone like that? Have you ever been through that same cycle of self-efforts? When the whole time I could have trusted in and accepted the substitute of the, of, uh, the sacrifice for me, Jesus. We can't ever get anywhere by our own rowing. That's what this, this little sentence is showing us. I, I'm so thankful that the sailors are here showing us that this is included in this book, that we hear about their efforts and how fruitless they were because it's one more teaching, one more example of how our rowing and our efforts and our trying does not ever get us out of the storms in our lives. It doesn't get us to salvation. There is one name under heaven by which men must be saved and that name is the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. The Bible says to put on Jesus Christ, like we put on a parachute and to trust in him, like you would trust a parachute. Instead of jumping out of a plane and trying to row yourself down safely, flapping your arms, you'll never succeed with that, by the way. Please don't try. We are told to put on Jesus Christ and trust in him as the only way of salvation. Stop rowing, friends. Stop rowing. We can't receive his grace by rowing. God is not asking you to row. It only delays the salvation. Look at our story. If they would have thrown Jonah off earlier, the storm would have stopped sooner and they wouldn't have had to go through all the time that they spent trying to row, which was fruitless. 
Maybe it was good exercise for a little while, but I don't think they needed the exercise. It was fruitless. Stop rowing. I feel like maybe you're not hearing me. Or I'm not hearing myself. Are you tired? Are you winded? Are your eyes set on some distant shore and you think that that shore will bring you peace and rest? It never works that way. You can never get there. The only way through is the death of a substitute. And this is the gospel that we have that is so good, guys. God is so good to not let them succeed in rowing. That is just a a precious gift and an act of God's mercy in their lives. What if God would have let them succeed? What if God would let me succeed and you succeed in our self-sourced efforts to bring salvation to ourselves? If God would have let them succeed, they would spread the gospel of their own strength. We did this. We saved Jonah. We saved ourselves. We can't be taken down by some silly storm. We are strong enough to survive and to live. They would have prevailed over sin in their own power if God would have let them succeed. And God can't ever let them let that happen. Sin is too strong. His salvation is too good and too complete. The storms, the sin storms around us, they keep us from succeeding on our own. And that's the point. There is a way through, but it is only through God's Son and faith in Him and trusting Him and calling upon Him. We must deal with the sin, which is the need for payment of that sin. Death must come. Death is the price of sin. Who will die? Well, there's two options. Me or Jesus. Me or a substitute. So, these men, these sailors, resist the plan of God at first, the sacrifice Uh, They put this sacrifice of Jonah, of their substitute, on the back seat as they try their best to row to safety. But because God loves them, he causes their rowing efforts to fail. So they're left with their only other option to kill the sacrifice and accept the offer of grace that has been told to them. This is embarrassing to acknowledge that they can't save themselves. It's embarrassing to anyone who has this thing called pride. We hate to acknowledge that we can't save ourselves, but this is the only way to be saved, and that's why humility is the door that we must walk through to experience God's grace and God's mercy. Humility means I can't I I need you because I can't do it on my own. I need you, God, because I can't do it on my own. God graciously, lovingly proved to to these sailors that they needed him. And they, to their credit, showed humility. They walked to that door and said, Okay, I can't do this, God. I need you. And then they have to show the other 
quality that God is looking for, which is faith. They, faith means to put your trust in God, and that's this substitute sacrifice of Jesus. I will put my trust in God's own solution for my sin, which is Jesus. So here they go. Look at what they say in our text. They say, therefore, they cried out to the Lord and said, we pray, O Lord. Look at what that is. They are praying. They address God personally. They use his name. Do you see how it has Lord in all capital letters there in your Bible? L-O-R-D. That is our English uh, way of, of, of showing that they're using the name of God, Yahweh, right there. It's his personal name, the name that, that people would call him who knew him. Um, and so they now know they, they're addressing God personally. They're coming straight to this one God. They're not trying anymore on their own. They are showing humility and faith. They are crying out to God. They say this, Please do not let us perish for this man's life and do not charge us with innocent blood. So they ask God personally for grace and mercy. They know that there's something about this blood that's very, very important. They ask for innocence when dealing with blood. They, they understand that there's innocence through blood. That it's going to be Jonah's blood that will, will somehow grant them innocence, but God has to do that. This is the opposite of what the Jews asked for when they were calling on Pilate to murder and crucify Jesus. Do you remember what they said? They said, let his blood be upon us. We want to be guilty because of his blood, for his blood. They continue saying, For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Finally, they submit to God's plan. So they, they address God personally. They realize that this man is, and his blood is going to provide them innocence, and, and, it, and only God could do that. And number three, they submit to God's will and plan. Guys, the cross was God's will and plan. A substitute was God's will and plan. How good is God's will and plan? It's not about my works and my efforts. It's always about the sacrifice of the substitute. The gospel. That's what that is. Not me doing my work. The gospel is for me. The gospel does work for me, and it's a gift of love and grace for me. Our text goes on. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Uh, you got to highlight that. That word ceased from, and from its raging, the whole phrase there, so vital, so important, so amazing. Look it, it ceased from its raging. Then the men feared God exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. Look at this, okay? Jonah is killed, we could say, as the substitute for the pagan sailors. And it works. It works, okay? Instantly, the storm stops. 
It says in Hebrew, it's really poetic language because it personifies the storm. It gives the storm a personality and it says the storm's anger ceased. The anger was stopped. The anger was satisfied. The anger was satiated. In Hebrew, it's really clear that it's the anger of God that ceased. The word that uh, in English that describes this action is called propitiation. Propitiation. And that means the wrath of God is satisfied. The wrath of God, God disappears and is gone because it's been paid for. God is angry at sin. And everybody needs to know it. People hate to hear that. But he is just and right to be angry at sin. People don't like to talk about the wrath of God and hell. They don't like to hear that they're going to hell. But they love to talk about their own righteous anger at social injustices or anything else they deem wrong with the world. I'm so angry with those people or that group or this philosophy. I'm super angry about it. It's in our culture. It's a virtue to be angry about things that you view as wrong with the world. Their anger leads to canceling people. But for some reason, people don't want to think that God is angry, supremely angry, with the sin of the world. Sin makes God angry. It's, a, it's an affront to him. But God is angry at sin. How angry? Well, guys, there is a storm coming. A storm from God where he will show the world the day of his wrath, the day where his anger is revealed at sin. You see, it's his job description to be angry at sin. He is a righteous, holy God. He must be the judge. He must punish sin and sinners. He is bound to do this task by everything that is just and good, Hitler cannot go unpunished, but neither can I. Unless, unless I have a substitute. Romans 8.1 is a glorious verse that encourages us greatly when it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, and according, but according to the Spirit. How can that be? How can I, even though I have sinned and I have broken all the Ten Commandments, how? Can I have no condemnation? It's because of propitiation. God's not angry with me anymore. How can that be? God poured out his anger and wrath on the substitute, and there is no more need for the storm. There is no more storm left. It ceases from its anger. God's wrath and anger is gone for me, and I am allowed to experience his love, joy, and peace 
because of Jesus. First John chapter 2 verse 1 says, My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So, so get this straight. He's writing to these people and he says, if you sin, you, God the Father is going to be angry, but you have someone who's an advocate for you, who is pleading for you, who has done something for you. And it says he himself, this advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, is the propitiation for our sins. God uses the word right there. And not for ours only, but for the whole world. So God... The Father is angry at our sins, but Jesus pleads his own blood, shows the Father that you and I have accepted his sacrifice and his substitute. And so now we are free to experience God's love and God's grace and God's mercy. God is not angry with you or I anymore because of his substitute, because of the propitiation. The storm is gone. The anger is quelled. We are at peace with God. The sin is paid for. And there is not a drop of God's judgment left. It has been guzzled by Jesus down to the bottom. Jonah has really struggled with this. He's thought, I cannot trust God if I fully surrender to his will. Because God isn't really committed to my good or my joy. He doesn't really care about me. But guys, that is wrong, and that's a lie that Jonah is believing about God. Any God who substitutes himself to take our punishment is a God we can trust. And make no mistake, he expects us to trust him, friends. Jonah didn't really know about God's goodness, so he mistrusted God, even though he could have known a bit about God's goodness, by reviewing all of the uh, stories of God's faithfulness and goodness from before him. But Jonah didn't have the cross, so I give him a little bit of a break. He didn't have the cross, so he didn't really know how good God was, how self-sacrificial God was. He didn't have the cross, but guys, what's your excuse? You have the cross. You have the perfect image of God's love and sacrifice right before you. Some of you wear it as a necklace. How can we reject and ignore such a great loving God? And how can we not put our trust in him? What is our excuse? Look at how this, the chapter ends. It says, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice in the Lord, uh, to the Lord and took vows. And the sailors now have a new fear. It's not the storm anymore, but a true fear of God, which is a good thing. They now know God's name. They know his power. They have been converted. They have made their vows after the danger has passed. These aren't people who are making vows. God, if you do this, then I'll do this for you. If you get me out of this jam, I'll, I'll serve you. Nope, this is, this is true faith. Because they're not making vows to get out of a problem. But as a response of humility and faith. This is the response of a saved soul. 
These men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered sacrifices to the Lord and took vows. So let's meditate on that verse this week. We'll, we'll hit verse 17 next week. But I just want us to think about that one verse right now, okay? Because of Jesus, because of the gospel, I will fear the Lord exceedingly this week. Not out of obligation, but in a response to his sacrifice and love. What does it mean to fear him? I will let my mind be set on him continually. I will take him into account when I make decisions, his love, his faithfulness, and his will. And I will honor him with my life and my thoughts. That's what it means to have the fear of the Lord. Secondly, they, they offered a sacrifice this week with the gospel in mind. Because of Jesus, I will offer sacrifices to the Lord. Not out of obligation, but in response to his sacrifice and love. I will give freely and cheerfully money, time, and efforts and serve all those around me. Their needs will come before my own. This will be my living sacrifice to him. And finally, because of Jesus, I will take vows, not out of obligation, but in a response to his sacrifice and love. If I haven't been baptized, I will do so in obedience to his command. If I can, uh, excuse me, I will continue to be committed to my God, my family, my church, and to the good of my world. I will serve the one true and living God alone. I will turn away from all idols. I will live as the bride of Christ with a true and pure heart for him. Nothing will be for my own will, but for his alone. That is how we can apply God's text to our life and apply the gospel to God's text and see what he has done for us this week. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Jonah's example, but for Jesus's fullness, that he was full of grace and truth, that he was full of all that we could ever need. And because of him, you are never angry at us. We love it. We love you in response to that. We fear you. We want to serve you. And we want to be faithful to you as a bride is faithful to her husband. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you all. We will see you all very soon. Men, see you Tuesday morning at 7 a.m.